It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 290 for April 29th, 2012. This week, a new version of the bat convinces me that it's still the best choice. I'll try to answer a great question about digital SLR cameras and video. Is Internet Doomsday just around the corner? And in short circuits, Google Drive. Not free, but it might be worth the cost. Apple looks for experience to deal with malware. And wow, what's just over the horizon? Although they're not as plentiful as they used to be, there's no shortage of email clients. Outlook and Outlook Express, of course, are in widespread use. And Thunderbird, both the Mozilla and Eudora variants, are popular. But many more are available. Whenever I look at the others, I wonder why the bat isn't used by more people in the United States. When I said there's no real shortage, here's what I meant. There is HTML email, Apple Mail, Balsa, Becky, Bloomba, Citadel, Claris Emailer, Claws Mail, Courier, Email Tray, Eudora, Forte Agent, Fox Mail, Incredimail, K Mail, Lotus Notes, Mail, Microsoft Office Outlook, Modest, Mozilla Thunderbird, Mulberry, Novell Evolution, Novell Groupwise, Opera Mail, Pegasus Mail, Inscribe, Sea Monkey Mail, Sylphide, Sparrow, Spicebird, The Bat, Windows Live Mail, and Yam. There is text based email, Alpine. Cone, Elm, News, Mail, MH, Mutt, Pine, Turnpike, and other Unix and Linux-based variants. And there's web-based email. 24-7 Office, Alpine, Bongo, Citadel, Google, Horde, IMP, Hula Project, Karyo Webmail, Open Groupware Webmail, Roundcube Webmail, Squirrelmail, Webpine, Yahoo, and Zimba. And, well, I'm sure I've missed some, even with Wikipedia's help. The bat, or as developers style it, the bat with an exclamation point at the end, has been my preferred email program since sometime in the 1990s when I discovered it. In the past 10 to 15 years, the program's capabilities have improved and the interface has been refined considerably. Documentation and the program's help system remain the bat's weak points, but its strengths are so pronounced that I really can't imagine using anything else. The filtering capability, for example, is more robust than anything else I've ever seen, and no matter what I want the bat to do, a method seems always to exist. Finding that method sometimes requires a little digging through the help file, or maybe asking an online bat support group, or even opening a ticket with RIT Labs. But There's always been a way to do anything I've asked this program to do. The ability to examine a message in its raw format, just pressing F9, a single key press, is invaluable when I want to evaluate a message to determine its validity. Many email applications make this difficult. 
Some make it impossible. RIT Labs has an unusual release schedule for its new versions. More than a year ago, they released version 5, but the activation key, and yes, this is a program you pay for, the activation key for version 4 still worked. The developers allow users to convert to the new version and use it until development reaches the point one stage. Well, this month the company shipped version 5.1, so if you're using any 5.0 version, it's time to upgrade. The new version adds Inbox Analyzer. That's intended to help users easily differentiate between messages sent by individuals and messages sent by a discussion list. Although this functionality was already possible through the judicious use of the powerful filtering system that existed in the BAT, the new feature divides messages into groups depending on various criteria. This makes the sorting feature considerably easier to use than it was in the past. The new inbox analyzer divides all messages into correspondence, that would be person-to-person messages, mailing lists, communications in groups, and newsletters. Those would be messages that don't require any replies, basically. And when the program identifies a new sender, it offers to move messages from that sender to specific folders, and it even offers to create the folders if they don't already exist. Because of security concerns, the bat didn't display images until version 4, An image download manager allowed users to selectively download images when they felt the images were safe. In version 5.1, this capability has been improved, and users can create rules to control which images will be downloaded or rejected automatically. The rules can be based on the URL for the image, the sender of the message, or the folder in which you have placed the message. The BAT includes an internal viewer for HTML messages, but some users prefer to use the browser's rendering engine to display HTML. The only browser supported, unfortunately, I think, is Microsoft's Internet Explorer. The new features include the ability to enable or disable pop-up hints and actions. For example, hovering the mouse cursor over an address could trigger a pop-up hint from the BAT, and that hint would offer to add the address to the user's address book. Users have complete control over whether the hints are displayed or not, how quickly they appear, how long they remain on the screen, and where they appear. This is really a pretty cool feature. From the Preferences panel, just choose Hints, set the display mode to Near Mouse Pointer, select the hints you'd like to have appear when you hover your mouse over some particular part of the interface, then select the delay time, the display time, and the size of the hint box. Hints appear, as you'll see in the image that I've provided on the TechBiter Worldwide website, when you hover the mouse over an address, for example. The bat offers to add that address to my address book. For advanced users, the bat now supports more than one SMTP server. The SMTP server is what sends messages, and depending on where you are, you may need to switch among servers. Some people who have their own domains use the host's SMTP server 
but occasionally switch to their internet service provider's SMTP server. Several reasons exist for doing this, and the new capability means that the user no longer needs to edit one group of settings, but only to switch between two existing setups. You know, I think that's worthy of a wow. The bottom line for the bat, five cats, a superb email client, but it's still not for everybody. Because of the enormous range of features, the BAT is the ideal email application for power users. Version 5 is easy enough to set up and start using, but less experienced users can become confused by all of the features. If you ever find yourself wishing that the email program you're currently using could do something that it doesn't do, you're a client for the BAT. You can download the program and install it with a 30-day free trial, and a full new user license is still just $45. For more information, visit the RIT Labs website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. James Pearson in Pittsburgh has some questions about digital single-lens reflex cameras on work sites for both stills and video. Although his questions were about a specific camera for a particular use, the questions are sufficiently general that I believe they'll be of interest to many people who are thinking about using a digital still camera for video. James says the company he works for, Rampart Hydro Services, has asked him to travel to some of their job sites this summer and shoot some video and still photos of the equipment in action. Because the immediate work zone is typically filled with high-velocity projectiles, he says he'll need to use some sort of telephoto lens to get close-ups of the operation without destroying the lens, probably from at least 100 feet away. Well, a long lens is certainly helpful in a situation such as this because it keeps the photographic gear and the photographer out of harm's way. A long lens will also change the perspective significantly. I happen to know that James already subscribes to lynda.com, so he'll probably want to take a look at Ben Long's program on lenses, preferably before he purchases the new gear if he has time, but definitely before he heads out to do any work. James says he has a budget of around $1,000 for new equipment. He says he's heard lately that most modern DSLR cameras shoot excellent video and that even some pro videographers are using them. He says he's leaning towards purchasing something like the soon-to-be-released Canon T4i to do double duty for capturing still and video images. That would probably be a good choice. Two of my co-workers purchased Canon T3i cameras within the past year, and both are delighted with the camera and with the quality of images they can create. One buyer is an experienced DSLR user. The other had never used a digital camera more advanced than the one in his phone. The T4i will be the replacement for the T3i, and it will definitely serve you well for still images, and if you can work within the constraints of the hardware, it will return outstanding video, too. The trouble is that I don't know right now what those restraints will be. 
I would expect no changes from the T3i in the video section of the T4i. Full HD video captured at 1920 by 1080 at 29.97 frames per second. Files would be saved in the Move format. Camera also offers 1280 by 720 and 640 by 480 video. One of the most significant problems for SLRs as video cameras has been the lack of autofocus in video mode. With some Canon cameras, it's possible to press a focus button, but the result of trying to focus while shooting video will be far from acceptable. When DSLRs record video images, the mirror must be locked in the up position. As a result, the autofocus circuitry, which is housed in the top part of the camera, is blind. Autofocus is still possible, but with a system that is much, much slower. Attempting to focus while recording video will cause the lens to go out of focus so that it can seek the best possible focus. The image recorded during this operation will not be usable for that reason, and because the built-in microphone will pick up the sound of the motor in the lens as it tries to focus the image. Now, the T4i will reportedly ship with a new 18 to 135 millimeter image stabilized lens that has a silent autofocus motor. If so, that would take care of the noise problem, but it wouldn't address the out-of-focus condition as the lens seeks focus. Unless, of course, Canon has also found a way to improve their secondary focus system, but I wouldn't bet on that. Now, having said all that, focus would not seem to be a problem for the use you have in mind. You'll be far enough away that minor movements won't have much effect on focus. Another constraint that might be a problem for you is the inability to zoom in or out while recording. The zoom mechanism will work, but two problems will immediately be obvious. First, the microphone is going to pick up any mechanical sound from the lens. And second, the image is going to go out of focus. It's possible to construct a lens that will stay in focus during a zoom operation, but it's not possible to construct a lens that will do that and be in the price range that most people can afford. So, you're going to need to treat the lens as if it's a fixed-length lens while you're recording. A third consideration is the length of the scene you can record. The camera is doing a lot of work when it's recording video, and that translates to heat. Heat translates to lower video quality and the camera will take itself out of service when the heat reaches the danger zone. This could be a problem outside, in the summer, in the sun. But still, you should be able to record 10 to 15 minutes of video before you start to see warnings in the viewfinder. While the best possible solution would be to use two cameras, one for stills and one for video, that's not going to be possible in your $1,000 price range. So, for the use you've described, that T4-1 camera should do pretty well. James says the primary purpose of the trip will be to capture video, but of course he will need to get some quality still images. Well, for stills, I recommend shooting in RAW mode and then using an application such as Adobe Lightroom 4 or Photoshop or Photoshop Elements to adjust the RAW files. The advantage of shooting in camera RAW is that the file will contain every bit of detail the sensor is able to record. 
and that gives you an enormous amount of latitude in how you use the resulting image. But the disadvantage of shooting in camera raw is that the raw files must be modified before they can be used. A raw file will appear dull and washed out and somewhat unsharp. Lightroom or one of the other Adobe products would be just exactly what you need to process the files so they'll look their best. James says he's never used a true DSLR camera before. He says he knows that the lack of automatic settings will present a learning curve, but he's always enjoyed reading the manual and figuring out how to work a new gadget. Bravo. Some cameras come with a tiny but useless printed manual, and all the good stuff is on a DVD or a CD. As I recall, my co-workers received full manuals with their T3i cameras, and I would expect the T4i to come with a manual, as well as a manual on CD. Having the manual in digital form is handy, but it doesn't replace a printed manual. James asked that if I like the idea of using a DSLR for video, do I have any recommendations for lenses, both for close-up and achieving a close-up view from about 100 feet away? But well, the kit lens that comes with the basic T3i is an 18-55mm lens. That would not be adequate for your needs. But the Canon kit camera that comes with an 18-135mm lens probably would. Alternatively, you might consider buying just the camera body and matching it with a higher quality used lens from a reputable store, such as B&H Photo and Video in New York City. They, for example, currently have a Canon EF 70-300mm f4.6-5.6 IS USM lens for about $400. If the T4i body is about the same price as the T3i body, $625, that would be just slightly above your price range. Although the 70-300mm lens would work well for your longer distance work, I think it would prove to be too long for closer work. For that, you'd need a lens that's more in the 30 to 50 millimeter range. As you'll see, there are lots of trade-offs when it comes to camera gear. James says that he's heard me talk about Adobe products from time to time, and that he just found a trial bundle of the Elements version of Photoshop and Premiere. And recently, they offered a license for $75 for both. So he jumped on the deal. He suspects that that should handle his editing needs for the near future. And indeed, it will. Premiere Elements is an outstanding application. It's easy to use and quite powerful. On July 9th, several hundred thousand people may suddenly discover that the Internet no longer works. At least that's what it'll seem like to them, and that's what lots of radio and TV stations are telling people. In fact, the Internet will continue to work as it has for several years. But several hundred thousand people may possess computers that cannot connect to websites or collect email. Is your computer one of them? It's easy enough to find out, but first, 
Let's consider the backstory. Last November, the FBI shut down a big botnet and arrested six Estonians who ran it. The botnet was being used to run a fraudulent business, and software had been installed that forced the affected computers to connect through the botnet's servers. Now, being the nice guys they are, the FBI replaced the botnet's command and control servers with servers of their own so that infected computers would still function properly. Had the FBI simply shut down the botnet command servers, hundreds of thousands of computers would have been disconnected. The FBI doesn't want to go into the hosting business, and they've set July 9th as the day they'll shut down the servers. If your computer happens to be infected at that time with what is called the DNS changer malware, you won't be able to connect to the services you normally use. Now, in fact, the FBI had planned to shut down the servers in March, and without giving much thought to those who would be inconvenienced. But a federal judge ordered the agency to keep the servers running until July 9th. As it turns out, the infected computers aren't all owned by unaware Dumbo individuals who don't know any better than to click a link that they've been offered. Security experts say that half of all Fortune 500 companies own computers that are infected. So, you have until July 9th to find out if your computer is infected and then disinfected. The good news is that finding out if your computer is infected is easy. And if it is, removing the malware isn't difficult either. If you have an up-to-date protective application installed on your computer, it's likely that you are not affected, or that the antivirus or anti-malware application already found the threat and removed it. Norton Internet Security, for example, detects the DNS changer malware as ZLOB or TIDSERV, but if you need to be certain, and I recommend that you do be certain, you'll want to go to www.dcwg.org and click the Detect link, or just go directly to www.dns-ok.us, and you'll probably see an image with a green background. If you see a red background, then you have a problem, and you need to return to the DCWG site to disinfect the computer. You'll find links to both of those, both DTWG and DNS-OK, at the TechBiter Worldwide website. And it's not a bad idea to go there and check it out, just to be sure. In short circuits, Google Drive isn't exactly free, but it might be reasonable. This week, Google announced Google Drive. They call it a place where you can create, share, collaborate, and keep all your stuff. Google says, and I quote, Whether you're working with a friend on a joint research project, planning a wedding with your fiancé, or tracking a budget with roommates... 
You can do it with Drive. You can upload and access all of your files, including videos, photos, Google Docs, PDFs, and beyond. Sounds good, doesn't it? But this is Google, and there's probably a catch, right? Well, the idea is certainly valid. Store everything in a location where you can access it from your home PC, your office PC, assuming that the network administrators allow it, from a smartphone, from a notebook, a netbook, or a tablet, and make it possible to share specific documents or whole projects with others. So it sounds very good. Specifically, the Google Blogster suggests using Drive for collaboration because Google Docs is built in. That means you'll have the ability to work with others on a real-time basis. Also, you can, and once again I quote the Google Blogger, store everything safely and access it anywhere. Drive works on Android devices as well as on PCs and Mac computers. And Google is working on a Drive app for Apple's portable devices. So it sounds great, doesn't it? You can also search by keyword and filter by file type or owner. Store files totaling 5 gigabytes or less for free. Uh, these days, 5 gigabytes might not be a lot of space. But you can increase the space to 25 gigabytes for $2.50 a month. Use the service a lot and your storage needs might well be measured in terabytes. Okay, Google will rent one terabyte of storage to you for $50 per month. $50 a month. Now, that's about the current going price for a one terabyte disk drive you'd buy and install at your house. When you upgrade to any paid account, your Gmail storage space expands to 25 gigabytes. Okay, that should be enough to hold all of your email messages for the foreseeable future. Privacy concerns still exist with Google, but as usual, the company has built in enough features that people will want that privacy concerns will probably be pushed to the background. For more details, check out the Google Drive website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. When an attack infected half a million or so Apple computers because of a long-known but unpatched flaw in Java, those of us who have tried for years to explain that all computers are vulnerable to some types of attacks felt somewhat vindicated. Not happy. I really don't wish a computer infection on anybody. But those Mac users who prepared themselves and their computers escaped. Apple eventually released security patches and told users to install them as soon as possible. But as of this week, 150,000 Apple computers are still infected. Worse still, security firm Intego says that another variant, which they've termed Flashback.S, 
is now active in the wild. Flashback.s doesn't require a password to install. The new version can cover its own tracks very well and go unnoticed for a long time. The malware places its files in the user's home folder at two distinct locations and avoids detection or sample recovery by deleting all files and folders in library caches Java cache. Now, Apple hasn't had to deal with very much malware and has generally been pretty slow to respond when threats arise. The first version of Flashback was used for what's called click fraud, in which compromised systems appear to click on advertising links so that advertisers are forced to pay for click-throughs that never occurred. As long ago as 2008, that's right, 2008, some security analysts predicted that as Apple's market share increased, fraudsters would be more likely to target the computers. Many Mac users scoffed at the thought that low market share was one of the reasons that Macs seemed less likely to be infected by malware. Well, Apple's market share has grown from 5% or less in the 1990s to about 12% now. Microsoft systems still represent the far larger share of the market, but nearly all Windows computers have antivirus and anti-malware applications positioned between the operating system and the bad guys. That's something that sadly many Apple owners ignore when it comes to their computers. Even sadder is the fact that Apple seems not to have bothered to consider the threats. Microsoft, battered and bruised, worked with vendors such as Symantec, Sophos, ESET, Kaspersky, Avast, AVG, Avera, McAfee, Bitdefender, and the list goes on and on. Microsoft has also developed its own security applications that are now built in to the operating system. In this race, Microsoft is the tortoise, and Apple is the hare. And we all know how that worked out, don't we? are going to be pretty exciting around here. I'm looking at several new applications and Photoshop plugins that I think you'll want to hear about. So looking ahead, well, there's Adobe's Creative Suite 6. It's going to ship next month. I've been working with the CS6 version of Photoshop for the past several weeks, and I hope to have preview copies of the rest of the suite soon. Overall, the applications are faster, and they address the latest technologies, whether that means on the internet or in digital photography or on the screen. And Adobe is going to make it easier for those who work with both Windows and Mac computers to install and use the applications. Lynda.com has some dynamite new programs that cover Adobe's CS6 applications. I am incredibly impressed by what the many authors who work to teach us how to use Adobe's many products have prepared introductory training sessions that are ready a month ahead of Adobe's release date. And for the past several days, I have been working with Photoshop plugins from NIK, Viveza, and SilverFX Pro. 
As powerful as Photoshop is, it's even better when you combine it with plugins from vendors such as NIK and Alien Skin. Oh, and speaking of Alien Skin, the latest version of eye candy is something that serious amateurs and professionals both will want to take a look at. So maybe you're thinking about buying a new computer? Well, when you buy a new computer from one of the big guys, it's going to come with a lot of crapware. That's one of the reasons I recommend dealing with local assemblers such as TCR computers. But if you ignore my advice and buy from somebody like HP or Dell or Toshiba, I have some suggestions that will help you get rid of the craplets that those vendors install. Oh, and near the end of this past week, Adobe announced the availability of Lightroom 4.1 Release Candidate 2 on Adobe Labs. This update corrects issues that were reported from the initial Lightroom 4.0 release and the Lightroom 4.1 Release Candidate, but it also allows Lightroom to support high dynamic range files, and it provides new controls to correct color fringing. Those are both big deals. And the update adds RAW file format support for several new cameras, including the Canon EOS 60DA, Olympus's OMD EM45, Samsung's NX1000, and the Sony Alpha NEX VG20. So those are some of the topics that are in the hopper now, and they'll be waiting for you in future weeks right here on TechBiter Worldwide. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.